This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, From the Backburner podcast is sponsored by Birch Barrel. Um, this grill, I can't say enough good things. I mean, live fire cooking at its best and what better to use for cooking wild game and meat that you've harvested, uh, than fire. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Uh, so versatile from cooking, smoking, baking, you name it. Um, this grill literally does it all. Uh, I, I've, I've used mine to, to no end and I'm always finding new and creative ways to use it. But uh, if you want to check them out, visit birchbarrel.com. Go onto the website. Uh, look at the barrels themselves. They have a lot of extras, too. Uh, seasonings, knives, uh, it, you name it. It's, it's really, really cool. They've got their own charcoal now, their own charcoal. Um, love lump charcoal. Um, it's been something I've used quite a bit uh, in my cooking and, and uh, uh, maybe something you can try out for years. But anyway, visit birchbarrel.com. If you find something you like on there, if you want to make a purchase, use my promo code BURNER, B-U-R-N-E-R at checkout for a 10% discount. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome back to From the Backburner Podcast. I'm Jonathan O'Dell. I'm your host. And it's a unusually sunny day here in Juneau, Alaska. Um, we're, we're still hanging out here uh, this week and, and uh, uh, kind of just enjoying the weather and, and the sights and sounds and the food. And I'm going to tell you what, man, it's just been, just been awesome. But I have a, a, another special guest with me today. Um, she is, she's kind of always been a fixture uh, around uh, the Pacific Flyway for for quite some time, and and uh, uh, I had to ask her on because because she has a, a pretty unique and unusual job, but uh, um, it, it's super super fascinating what she does and and can talk about with us today. So uh, anyway, I want to welcome Patty Schwallenberg. Patty, welcome to the podcast. Bonjour, <laughs> Um, I am the executive director of the Alaska Migratory Bird Co-Management Council. I am an Ojibwe woman from northern Wisconsin, but have been in Alaska since 1992, where I immediately learned of the amendment to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and became involved in um, making sure the Alaska Natives in Alaska were uh, meaningfully involved in the uh, creation of the Migratory Bird Council and the regulations setting the seasons for the spring and summer harvest of migratory birds. Yeah. So you, you work on behalf of, of the first nations here in Alaska, uh, in terms of setting seasons and harvest. Well, my job actually is to, um, 
serve all partners of the Alaska Migratory Bird Co-Management Council, and I'm just going to call it the acronym AMBCC, because yeah. it's such a long <laughs> name. But um, the the AMBCC has three partners, uh, the federal government, the state government, and what we call the Alaska Native Caucus, and that's 10 Alaska Native people representing 10 different regions across the state. So I serve actually all three partners, but the Native Caucus um, relies on me to make sure that the co-management process stays uh, stable and healthy and um, to assist them with any regulations uh, that they are interested in pursuing. Right. Now, so I think what most people are unaware of is like, a lot of the the flyway states, you know, we we're all kind of in the same boat together, and and so we're trying to set regulations and frameworks, you know, for the Pacific Flyway, Central Mississippi, Atlantic, and all that. But Alaska uh, has Alaska so big and so diverse, and and actually has so much waterfowl um, all on its own that it has its own frameworks uh, for the state. Uh, just like its own package, the Alaska season frameworks, because there's, there's so much going on up here, right? Yes. Yes. And, and then add in the spring and summer harvest, which is obviously different than the fall winter. And it's most mostly, um, Alaska native people that live in rural areas and, um, the harvest is for strictly for subsistence. So, um, People wonder, you know, why are you harvesting in the spring and summer? That's taboo, you know, and that's when they're, you know, breeding and, you know, laying their eggs and nesting and et cetera. But that's the only time the birds are there. And when you live in a small community with no store, you know, really no businesses at all, you rely on the land and, the, and all that it provides for your daily sustenance. So the migratory birds are important because they're the first bird, or excuse me, the first wild food or the first fresh fresh food that is available in the springtime. And so people are really excited when the birds come because they've been living all winter on dried fish and uh, dried meat and uh, <clears throat> berries and those kinds of things that they've, you know, gathered during the summer and preserved for the winter months. Yeah, so, so. stocked and stored up and all that. But that's... a. Uh, um, I, I don't want to gloss over that point. So what, so what Patty's talking about is subsistence harvest, um, on migratory birds. So this is, this is like a really cool, unique opportunity. I mean, uh, I don't think, you know, many folks in the States, you know, appreciate that, that whole idea because it isn't something that's part of our, uh, annual kind of hunting cycle, you know, where it's, where it's collecting of eggs, uh, of, of birds. Um, you know, I think we've, we've eaten duck eggs, you've eaten, you know, quail eggs or whatever, but a lot of times those are farmed and, you know, sold at stores mm-hmm. or whatever, but these are like, like wild, this is like wild egg harvest off, you know, wild birds out in the, the wilderness of Alaska, uh, you know, coasts and interior and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And mostly they're gull eggs or seabird eggs, that are, are being harvested and, and there's conservation measures, traditional conservation conservation measures that, that they take. Like if there's three eggs in the nest, only take one or, you know, don't take all of the eggs in other words, so that there's still enough for, for the future. And they have other strategies and, and they, um, the subsistence season also has a 30 day closure for the nesting period. So that, um, and the, 
the people that are actually doing the harvesting as part of the AMBCC Native Caucus have identified when those times are because they're the ones on the ground and they know when the 30-day um, period is that sensitive to the birds. And so then they've chosen those dates for each of their regions, and it's different for each region in the state. Right. So you were talking about um, there's a... There's a, there's a, a conservation ethic that comes with with c this egg collection. Yes. Um, now, is that something that's like is that strictly an ethic, or is that is that a a you know is that written in rule or regulation? Like, oh, you know, if there's, you know, is it is it down to that, or is it just something that that is practiced where it's if there's three eggs, you only take one? Or? It's it's a it's a practice that has been passed down from for many many generations. It's considered an in, in, indigenous knowledge. This is how we manage these birds so that we will continue to enjoy them and so that's just a uh, unspoken rule if you will uncles pass that on to their nephews and, and the aunties pass that on to their nieces and however um the transfer of knowledge goes in other communities but um and the the methods and means are different during the subsistence season they uh there's no shooting hours there's um there's difference in the the ammunition and um, the the harvest the birds by by uh, corralling them. Okay. That's not the word, but yeah, but they're like a drive. Yeah, and the the um, the important part of the NBCC is that the amendment to the treaty stated that the regulations would be based um, on the cultural practices. And so we make sure that all the regulations that are passed are based on the traditional and cultural practices of the Alaska Native people, even though um, non-Native people who live in those same communities are eligible to harvest as well. Right. So um, we have a wanton waste regulation that um, is more strict than uh, what normally people would have. Uh, we have a handicraft regulation that allows for... Um, Alaska Native artists to use migratory bird parts and in their artwork and be able to sell them. Um, so everything is based on on the lifestyle, basically, of Alaska Native people. Yeah. Well, it's it, talking about food is like one of my favorite topics of all time. <laughs> I I can I can pretty much do it all day. I mean, it's it, yeah. I I often think as as you were talking about the the that whole ethic. Um, you know, behind something that's kind of handed down. I mean, I, when I started to learn um, foraging for, uh, you know, why why taking from the wild, either berries, fruits, all that stuff. You know, there's there's this mantra of of pick half, leave half. Mm -hmm. You know, the wildlife needs it. You got to leave seeds out there. There's you know all that kind of stuff, and it's it's interesting to hear that even in in you know. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Here in Alaska, we're, you know, like you're... you're essentially doing the same thing that this is some 
you know, something passed down generationally, mm -hmm. culturally, mm -hmm. um, as a, as an ethic to be able to say, yeah, we're going to, you know, main, this is, we want the birds to come, we want birds to be born so they can come back next year and provide yeah. us more yeah, eggs. Yeah, so. and their survival and the bird's survival depend on it. Right. So it's, it's a very much a, uh, reciprocal relationship. Yeah. Well, and, and so you were talking about, so, you know, the, the take of some gulls and, and all that other stuff, but I, there's a couple of unique game species, um, that we've been talking about here this week, uh, a little bit. And one is, is the emperor goose, um, that there's, there's take on it, which is really a, a absolutely cool species in my opinion. <laughs> you never get to see them down South outside of Alaska, but, yes. um, um, uh, but there's a, a as we were kind of going, walking through some of those regulations, there's the subsistence take from that. Um, and then as well as just kind of, a, allowing, you know, uh, residents of areas of Alaska as well as some non-residents to, to have some, some level of harvest on, on top of that as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of working through that. Um, that was super cool. And then you do, uh, uh, take on uh, black brand. Is that right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's like a black brand, um, harvest season. Yeah. Subsistence season. Yeah. Cause those, those are two species that, you know, unless you're, you're, you know, familiar with or you know mm -hmm. a close part like you I might never see him i mean emperor goose season was closed to to hunting um uh, public hunting for what 30, 30 years, years yeah. yeah um just recently got opened a, a few yeah. years ago and the reason it was reopened is because the um alaska native people from uh, across alaska in the, in the harvest areas uh, willingly agreed to not harvest the emperor goose. They closed. They chose to close the harvest themselves in their communities, and um, so then we worked with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the state of Alaska, you know, our partners and the Pacific Flyway about reopening it because there were a lot of elders that came to us and said, you know, we haven't had this bird for thirty years, and I just would like to have a taste of it again before I, you know, pass on. Or maybe we can just have a harvest for the elders. And so they're starting to feel real frantic about the fact that they had willingly stopped harvesting this bird and it's been thirty years, and they're like, "Come on, let's, you know, what's taking so long?" <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we started doing more. Um, intense work on the population models they were using to try to figure out how many birds were out there and worked with the native caucus to identify areas that may have been uh, the birds may be starting to go to now instead of the harvest or the areas that were traditionally um, surveyed by the service and so the service worked with each of these communities and um, we came we finally reached a, the threshold where we could have a harvest and so we um, uh, in the management plan, we divide it into three areas. So if the population is above a certain number, we call that the green zone, and it's the open harvest. And then there's a yellow zone, and that's where we um, start initiating conservation measures. And then if um, harvest goes into the red zone, then harvest stops again. Right. And so we did a um, five-year management plan and the three-year trial on the harvest in the first two years the numbers went down but then the numbers came back up this year so um i think we're we're reaching like a sustainable level but it was only done because the partners were willing to work together and the uh, uh service and fishing game were willing to listen to the indigenous knowledge that was being provided by the native caucus and you know take it seriously and start investigating some of the things they were saying right now, was there any, um, like, habitat work or, or 
manipulation that that took place to to aid and for emperor geese like you know any any work sort of done no but there's a lot of studies that came as a result of our efforts to open harvest that um usgs and blm i believe and the fish and wildlife service and fish and game tour have um initiated studies on habitat and um survival and uh nest you know survival and some things like that yeah to try and understand better why you know they're not uh, increasing like they should. Right, right. So, so we've been talking just like you know briefly about the the, the subsistence on on migratory birds. Um, there's also subsistence on on other species of two mammals and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, isn't there? Um, because you're obviously so remote there's not a there's not your your local grocery store to go yeah, pick up right and, i mean it, it's it's a, everything you know muskrats and you know trapping and fishing obviously and they have uh, traditional fish wheels along the yukon river and the kuskokum river um and they're basically catching fish for the rest of the year and mm-hmm. so they need a, a an efficient way to get the fish so they either use either use nets or or uh, fish wheels and so that's, you know, one of the important resources in Alaska. And then there's, um, you know, large land mammals and small land mammals. And yeah. uh, then, of course, all of the marine mammals, species and shellfish, berries, you know, so right. devil's club. This is, this is, there's, there's a sign actually outside the hotel on the street. I, I love it. It's, it's, there's a bunch of signs on the, on the lamppost here that say voices of Juno and, and one of the, the, the signs says, you know, we are foragers, hunters, and fishers. Um, and, and I really like, I, that really caught me, you know, right away, just caught my attention. And I was like, I was like, you know, that's really, it, it's something within the hunting and angling community, you know, mushroom hunting, any of that stuff that for a city, you know, to be able to say that, I mean, that, like that sign would never appear in like, you know, voices of Phoenix, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, right. like here's the kind of people we are, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's so much more a way of life and being tied to, to those activities in the land, uh, for, for your life, for your lifestyle, for, for, you know, everything about it. Right. I mean, like there's a few others that are like, you know, we're aficionados of the color gray and we're, (laughs) we're, we're, you know, we're, we're water people. And I mean, like all these things that you can kind of attribute to, to the Juno, you know, kind of lifestyle and and city here. But, um, yeah, it really, it really struck me, you know, as something that, uh, I think, you know, Alaskans can and are, are proud of, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they certainly can be. And I, I, I'm certainly proud of it myself. Um, you know, it's something that I do. I forage, I hunt, I fish. And, and, uh, I think a lot of the folks listening, you know, kind of relate to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a saying, at least in, in the South Central Alaska tribes that I worked with is particularly right after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And, um, uh, we were trying to get the tribes more meaningfully involved in the restoration process because there was no funding available for um, human health or psychological issues with this oil spill because basically their whole grocery store was damaged and gone. And so we were at a meeting with the Exxon Valdez Trustee Council trying to get them to understand the enormity of, of what had just happened and um, one of the elders that were with us that was on my board said, um, for us, 
when the tide is out, the table is set. And now when the tide is out, there's nothing there for us to eat. Yeah. And that's true. You know, they, they eat seaweed and shellfish and um, little critters that hang on the rocks <laughs> you know, and, and squid. And, you know, it's, it's a rich, rich environment out there. And Alaska Native people have... Um, learned over the centuries to to access those in a respectful way and and make sure that they're still there today yeah yeah the the, the ocean is is just a bountiful harvest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all the time um i've been getting my absolute fill of seafood while i've been here <laughs> yes. shrimp and cod and halibut and i mean you name it it's been like uh you know i i i can't get I live in the desert, and mm, so yeah. to, to trust seafood, you know, I mean, I see I see seafood in Phoenix and stuff, like, oh, you know, fresh seafood. I'm like, yeah, how refreshing is it, really? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm here in Alaska. I'm literally looking at the ocean, you know, like, they probably did get this, like, just a couple hours ago. So, oh, you yeah, know, you could spoil up here. I mean, I go anywhere else in the country. I'm like, hmm, you know, I don't know about that shellfish or the seafood or whatever, but... Um, yeah, the, the lifestyle, the subsistence lifestyle, what they call it, I got firsthand um, experience with that right after, one, a couple years after I'd moved up here, I went up to a small village on the Yukon River, and it was in the middle of winter, and I was going to help them set up their natural resource program. So I was working with this individual, and um, he said, okay, well, we'll see you in the morning, okay, so the next morning I go to the council office, and there's nobody there, and... Okay, so I wait around, you know, until probably about 9.30, he shows up. Okay, well, let's get going, you know. So we start working, then about 10.30, he's, well, let's go. I'm like, where are we going? we got to go check the traps. Okay, so we jump on the snow machine. Now if we go, get the, you know, check the traps, we come back, work for maybe another half hour. He goes, let's go have some moose soup, you know. So we go to his cabin, we have soup, you know, we go back, work a little while longer. we got to go back and check the traps. And, you know, so that's the way it was. Now we got to go get some wood, you know. So there, when we as everyday workers, nine to five workers are inundating those villages with, you know, we need a resolution or what do you think about this regulation we're trying to pass or can you vote on, you know, the results of this survey? You know, they have much more important things that they're dealing with out there. Like, do I have enough food for my family and is my snow machine going to start and so I can go get wood or or whatever, yeah. you know, and and so we didn't in my in my mind in my perception as a person living in the city, we didn't get much done work done that first day. Yeah. But in his mind, we were busy all day. We got an incredible amount of work done. Yeah. You know, well, and and that's the thing. I mean, uh, subsistence the subsistence lifestyle is it's an everyday thing. Like there's as you were saying. I mean, there's to think about you know hunting, fishing, foraging for your basic, very survival. Like it takes some effort. It's, it may not be all day, but it's every day. Yeah. You know? And and you don't get a choice. Right. Right. So yeah, like the normal eight to five work shift in in Alaska, you know, might, might stretch out quite a bit. Cause yeah, you go, Oh, you got to check the traps. Oh, you know, but the, the energy and effort that you put in, not only to acquiring it, but preparing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not only just, you know, Hey, we're making, you know, a meal for tonight, but you know, you got to think ahead of, you know, okay, we're going to put up so much of this drying it, smoking it, 
you know, preserving it for, mm-hmm. for the lean times when, when we're not going to be able to get this. I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into that. Um, I don't know that, that a lot of people, you know, fully appreciate like, you know, oh, I've got to cook three meals a day, you know, like living in the city and stuff yeah, like that. Right. But, you know, oh, we need more. We can go to the grocery store or whatever, you know, um, uh, filling your freezer with, with a big animal like an elk or, or something like that. I mean, you know, certainly helps, but it's, you know, meal plan, meal prep, mm-hmm. you know, thinking through all that stuff. There's, you know, there's, there's quite a bit more effort when it comes to subsistence. Uh, and it's very communal, you know, uh, people will go hunting and then they will share with people who can't go hunting or maybe people who don't have a boat or someone who may have lost their husband or, you know, a widow with kids or something. And so it's, uh, if like one village may only have maybe four bird hunters and then they hunt for the entire village, you know? Yeah. And I grew up, I, I grew up in a, in a, in a pseudo subsistence style life. Um, as a kid, I mean, it was, we weren't, we weren't hunting things for the antlers or, or, you know, to, to brag to our friends. It was, you know, we were, we were trying to, the rule in our family was, you know, um, if we're out after deer, elk or whatever it was, um, the rule was shoot the first thing that comes in. If a group comes in, shoot the biggest one. <laughs> doesn't matter what's on it, but like, look at its size. Um, because we were trying to feed people. I mean, you right. know, between my grandparents, uh, my dad and my two uncles, their families, you know, myself, I mean, there was 13 people, you mm-hmm. know, that we were trying to do, but I remember, uh, my grandfather, there would be, um, he lived in a small community in Montana <clears throat> and we had some good years, you know, where, where we were filling tags, um, lots of them. And, and, uh, you know, yeah, down the road, you know, the, the old man Johnson, you know, busted his legs. So he couldn't get out this year. Hey, go take half this deer down to him, you know, after we'd process or, you know, yeah, widow so-and-so, you know, take, take some meat down to her, get her some, some burger and roast and stuff. And, you know, so that, that idea of sharing certainly isn't lost on me. I mean, I, I kind of grew up in that, mm-hmm. you know, that sense of community when it came to, to the wild harvest and, and those kind of things. Um, so I can appreciate that. Um, so one of the things I've gotten to try here since I've been in Alaska, I'd heard about for a long time, but, uh, I, I finally got to try it last night was reindeer sausage. Mm, um, what'd you think? <laughs> I, I love it. I, uh, no lie. We ate it and I just like, I couldn't get out of my brain and I started looking it up. And, and so I was like, you know, who makes this and all stuff. So you got the Alaskan sausage company apparently is mm-hmm. like the, the primary of making these reindeer sausages. So I, we literally had dinner last night. I tried it for the first time. I'm on my phone. I'm looking it up. I, I can't stop thinking about it. nine o'clock last night. I ordered a taxi to take me from the hotel <laughs> to the Fred Meyers <laughs> grocery store so that I could buy, I have some packs in my refrigerator right now that I'm taking home with me because I'm super excited about this sausage. It was oh, so delicious. <laughs> but, uh, I'm wondering, are there, are there some like very classical or traditional, um, Alaskan wild game dishes that that probably the world doesn't know about but are very common. Um yeah, there are uh, but they're not like wildly known like you right. like I I go to the communities a lot in my job and so mm-hmm. I will go and then of course they cook and so this is there's a really probably very unhealthy but yummy yummy <laughs> dish. <laughs> called halibut a la mac is what they call it in the Chugash region. And so you put halibut in a um, baking dish and then you cover it with mayonnaise 
and I think there's some soy sauce in there somewhere, and then onions and and um, cheese, and you bake it, and it's like the most amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious. Um, they make a uh, there's a. Uh, hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Seafood salad, but it's with all these little critters, and you know, and there's shrimp obviously there, but there's this uh chitin in there, and um, octopus, and just some really unusual um animals that you wouldn't be able to go buy in the store, right? And then they mix it in kind of like a coleslaw y kind of a salad, super delicious. These chitin, they cut them up and pickle them. Or put them in an, an oil and preserve them that way in seal oil and yeah. put them in jars and yum. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Yeah, I always find that there's, uh, I'm I'm always on the, the lookout or the hunt for like, you know, these, these kind of relatively unknown mm-hmm. dishes or ingredients and stuff like that. I know one of the things that you guys have up here that's, that's pretty rare um, in the overall, which is birch syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's... For those who've, n- who've never heard or, or you know seen this, so so it's made from birch trees, um, much in the same way of you know maple syrup mm-hmm. is, but but um, very very unique flavor um, and way more like there's far less of it produced than there is maple syrup in the world, and so it's very very expensive per ounce. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow, what a like like a super cool ingredient that. For cooking, yes, because yeah. it has a unique flair. Also, you can tap a birch tree in your yard, yeah. like like you would a maple tree. You know, overnight, the next day, you take the sap and you just drink it. They call it birch water, and very good for you. You have to drink it within like two or three days or something like that, or it goes bad. But yeah, just, yeah. and it's really good. Yeah. Well, and, and of course there's, I mean, there's all kind of the, the typical berries and stuff. I've seen blueberries and, and huckleberries and, you know, the, the honeys and all the that other gamut, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, berries. Uh, it seems like rhubarb has made it up here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was seeing a bunch of rhubarb things the other day, uh, in my walk about town and, and, uh, and all that. Yeah. They're, um, in the wild, there's a lot of wild, wild foods that, um, people use and and eat too devil's club is one of them yeah yeah there's i'm i keep looking out at this mountain that's like right outside my room that's like super steep and i like i'm i'm very fearful of it because of how steep the grade is (laughs) it's a lot steeper than the mountains that i i go hike at home um but i i'm like i'm also like really enticed by it like i need to go hike up there and just to just to walk around and see what's out there in the woods um, cause that's, that's the funnest part for me. I mean, I was, I think in terms, uh, a, a friend of mine once told me he, uh, um, we were, we were out someplace and, and every morning before work I would go out hunting, um, just 
because it was like, you know, we, we weren't starting work until 8 a.m. And so mm-hmm. I had kind of a couple hour window to go out and just, you know, uh, hunt. And so every day I came back with, one day I came back with blue grouse. Um, the next day I had a couple squirrels. The next day, like, <laughs> I just, like, it, like, it was, they would ask me what I was going out to hunt. And I'm like, I don't know. I'll, I'll just see what I find, you know. And so for me, it was, it was, he, he told me, he said, he said, you are the most productive hunter I've ever met. He's like, some days you're coming home with animals. Some days you're coming home with like berries or, you know, fruits or something edible out of the forest. And he's like, you're just like literally the most productive. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's for me, you know, like generalizing instead of specializing, Mm -hmm. you know, where instead of, oh, we're going out to do this. I think you, you, you don't open your eyes and you might miss everything else that's kind of going on. Yeah. That still might be one of the targets out there, but, but man, there's like opportunities that, that jump out at you if you're not paying attention, uh, you know, that you could take advantage of. I mean, you know, I, we went out on a, on a quail hunt a couple of years ago and I ran across a manzanita bush, um, hmm. that all the fruit had dried literally on the plant, um, and bears hadn't come and eaten it yet. So I was like, Oh, this is really cool. So I, you know, like pulled a Ziploc bag out of my, out of my bird vest and, you know, filled it up with a bunch of manzanita berries and stuff. And, uh, you know, or I'll be out and, you know, you might find like a late cactus fruiting. You might find a prickly pear or, or, a, or a barrel cactus, you know, late in the season, December, January, that's, that's got great fruits on it. It's like, Oh, I got to get some of those too. So like, you know, ultimately every day I, I, I don't necessarily set out to come home with something every day, but that usually is what happens. <laughs> like <laughs> you probably survive well in Alaska. I, 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 I would, I think I would really enjoy it here. I've, I've told people like, I defy you to like, like the Pacific Northwest of the, of the lower 48. Like I've told people this, I said, I defy you to die in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> like there's so much food on the landscape and you get here to Alaska and realize that, that it's like, that, but on steroids almost like there's mm-hmm. so much food around you at all times. You just got to have like a little bit of know-how or a little mm-hmm. bit of, you know, mm-hmm. just to it, between the ocean and the, and the land, like, Oh my Lord, there's just, you know, there's, there's so much to eat. You could, you could be 800 pounds <laughs> if you really wanted to. I mean, you'd probably work it off, you know, going to collect it all, but they say the average person that moves to Alaska gains 30 pounds. Really? <laughs> yes. I, I don't doubt that. Um, there's so much good food to eat up here, um, you know, let alone what you're getting on your own. But, you know, the restaurants here in town are, are, are phenomenal with some stuff. Oh, yeah. And I came from a place where, you know, we didn't have salmon. We, we had freshwater fish, you know. And right. so we would get canned salmon, but it have those little round backbone pieces in there you know and it was yuck you know i didn't like salmon and i moved up here and found it there's like five species of salmon and they're ranked and this is the best one and so over 30 years you know you start eating salmon you become kind of like a snob you know? <laughs> well yeah i mean it's certainly like it's when like, you're eating the best of salmon possible on earth yeah i mean like some stuff chum salmon Ooh, yeah <laughs> Well, I definitely won't invite you out to seafood in Phoenix when you come down there because <laughs> I know it's, uh, it's, it's probably not up to par by the Alaska standards. So right. I, I probably, I now tacos now they, they, that I got you good right there. Yeah, like we can, definitely. we can make that work. So, um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's just really surprising that I, I don't, I don't know how many folks out there, like, that's why I wanted to have you on. Cause I don't think, you know, many people know about, you know, 
what goes on up here. It's, you know, the last frontier as far as it's, you know, concerned and stuff. But there's there's a very strong uh, working relationship with the tribes and 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 everything else and, and just how this, the largest state, you know, functions and, and works and operates in, mm-hmm. in, in its own kind of sphere a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. You know, and especially with um, so few people, you know, I mean, it's the, the densities of people are not super great. I mean, you have Anchorage, you have Fairbanks, you know, you have your kind of your urban centers, but, you know, across the landscape, I mean, you could be, you can be way out in the middle of nowhere, like those, those TV shows that they have about, you know, life below zero or, you know, <laughs> some of those goofy so ones. funny, yeah. Some of them are, they're not very far out of Anchorage. <laughs> <laughs> are they believable? Are they believable at least? Or are they, they pretty dramatized for like They're reality dramatized TV? And I, yeah. Some of the things they do, I really don't think people are that yeah. ignorant. <laughs> some things are just doing for TV ratings. I think and, so. You know, yeah. it's just, it's, that's not the average Alaskan. Let's put it that way. Right. They're much smarter. <laughs> <laughs> These are the below average Alaskans is what you're saying? <laughs> These are the people that came up for an adventure and are doing learning by doing i think i mean that's my perception right i'm sure i'm fending out thousands of people but no no <laughs> no it's uh uh yeah i i i just you know getting to see this for the first time like i am just like overly impressed i get to hear about it a lot obviously you know and and you come down and and visit us down in the states for for some of the meetings and, and, uh, I get to hear about this a lot. And, and it just occurred to me that I was like, I was like, man, I bet you there's hardly anyone you know, kind of knows about this. This is, you know, this is really cool what you do, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, the ability to work with us and of course, subsistence hunting, like to me, that's just the, kind of the ultimate, you mm-hmm. know, um, if, if you were to take, you know, probably the purest form uh, of, of hunting and fishing. Like there's a lot of people who would like to hunt and fish, you know, like for all their meat resources for the year and, and do all that stuff. But I, I, a lot of us can't get there, but you know, here in Alaska, like it's happening every day for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm just, I'm blown away. Like, you know, and I think the egg harvest is cool. Like I, I never get to go out and harvest wild eggs, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, would love to love to try that someday. I don't know know how or when or whatever that would do. Love to just see it and take part in it because I think that's that's probably one of the coolest uh, foraging things mm-hmm. you know that you could do. So it is pretty incredible. And the the um, materials that the Alaska Native people use in the handicrafts, like there's in the Alaska Native Medical Center, they have a lot of art displays in Anchorage. <clears throat> Alaska Native artwork in, in these glass cases and in inset windows and every floor. And there's one of all baskets, and there's a basket in there that has little bird claws. All It's a grass basket, hand-woven, and then all these little bird claws interwoven in that basket. It's beautiful. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been blown away by a lot of the art now. I, I know that I've been walking past, like, you know, a lot of the touristy shops where it's you know kind of commercial mm-hmm. <laughs> produced stuff but there's like like uh sea alaska heritage yes. just around the corner and, yes. and uh a, a, i mean just a, yeah a lot a lot of cool stuff um art art wise you mm-hmm. know um and and the use of natural materials like you know 
moose antlers and and mm-hmm. bones and whale bone and yeah, it's, sinew and it, it's know. so incredible. Um, the ivory, know, yeah, carving and whale baleen and yeah, the materials are are different than what we would use in the lower forty eight for artwork. Yeah, and it makes it even more unique and. But some of the, I mean, like the intricacy of the carvings that I've seen. Oh, heck yeah. Like, like this isn't just like rough hewn, like the, the level of detail that some of these artists have are just incredible. Like I, I'd, I'd probably break it, you know, if I was like, if I was trying to do it myself, I'm, you know, I, I've, I've got big meat hooks and stuff and not, not as delicate or fine as, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, don't have the, the, the fine motor skills to be able to pull off some of, <laughs> some of the things that I've seen up here <laughs> that I'm sure take just tons and tons of practice. But, um, I haven't seen any of the feathers yet. Like you were talking about, um, for use in, in art that's for sale and well, things the, like that. Um, you, you may be able, well, hmm, that's a good question. They do make dance fans with right. feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, face, the masks, the dance, the mask, dance, that's, God, I can't talk, dance masks that have sometimes have feathers on them. Um, before the handicraft regulation passed, um, allowing that use of migratory bird feathers and other parts, non-edible parts, they were using like turkey feathers and they felt that that was disrespectful to the mask or to whatever it was they were making because they weren't able to use the the pieces that were supposed to be, you know, in those pieces of art. And so it was a really uh, big success to get that regulation passed. But um, the uh, actual pieces of art now are um, that have migratory bird parts are kind of hard to find because Non-native people cannot sell them to non-native people. Only Alaska native people can sell them to non-native people. So many of the shops are owned by non-native people. Oh, okay. So there's not a mark, not not a market, not a place for someone to go where they can. Right where that's happening. You know where that's happening. Yeah. And there's a process. You know, if you wanted to buy one, you know, and to prove that it's um, made by an Alaska native. If it's like in a consignment type shop, that would work. Then they have to have what's called a silver hand emblem attached to it. And that's a um, program of the state of Alaska that uh, certifies that it was made by an Alaska Native artist. Okay. And so then that that satisfies the enforcement portion of that regulation. Right. So if you can go to a shop where they sell consignment items so an, an individual artist can just go put his piece there and they would sell it for him or her, right. that would be where you could get them or from just an individual artist that you know. Right. But like these gift shops down here, probably not. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's, I'm, I'm kind of floored by the amount of jewelry stores in Alaska. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I rarely take the opportunity to walk up and down the streets here, you know, cause usually I come here for my meetings and then I go. And so I did walk last night and I felt like I was walking down, um, a street in like Mexico, you know, like Cabo San Lucas or one of those ones that has all the jewelry stores, you know, jewelry store after jewelry store after jewelry store. And that's what it reminded me of. And it makes sense. I mean, they're catering to the cruise ship people. Yeah. Well, and, and the cruise ships, I mean, uh, holy Lord, like, <laughs> you know, 
it's it, if you they're huge. <laughs> oh well, yeah. So first of all, they're huge, and there's like three of them out in the dock, yeah. like every day. But here's the thing: they show up early in the morning and dock, and then all the people get off and they flood the streets. Like sometimes it's hard; it's super crowded to walk down the streets here. And they're hanging out, and then like everybody gets back on the ship, and then they leave, you know, late at night. And then a new ship shows up and it's like whole new people. And so like every day it's like, man, there's like rush hour traffic when we're trying to go eat lunch down here. <laughs> and you can kind of tell which ones they are. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, they're certainly not work, walking with a purpose. Like we're trying to get to lunch and we're headed to the, the we, we don't want to wait in line all day for, for, uh, for fish tacos or something like that, you know, yeah. um, just super impressive. But, uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm never been on a cruise um, but now after seeing, you know, the effects here in Juneau, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to end it and I'm taking one. <laughs> I'm like, that's just I, a mass I'm of people. Kind of it's a, a whole city too. So I don't know if I can handle that many people in one location and I can't go anywhere yeah. <laughs> to get away. Well, if they had a cruise that allowed <laughs> me to fish off the back of the boat, like maybe that, that, that might be. And it was a big area that only allowed a few people at a time. Right. <laughs> Right. No combat fishing. <laughs> yeah, I, we could just troll using the the, the the cruise ship. That would be fun. Fish on, fish on. <laughs> Slow the boat down. I got got to reel this in. I got dinner. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, I have to tell you this funny story. When um, cruise ships were going into, in and out of um, Prince William Sound and Lower Cook Inlet, you know, they come into Anchorage. And they were coming along uh, Lord Cook Inlet in one of our villages. A couple of their hunters were out there, and they were um, hunting for seal. Well, they got one. And, you know, yay, you know, we got it, and we're reeling it in, and this cruise ship is going by, and the people are, like, horrified. And so it's a big headline in the paper in the Anchorage Daily News about the subsistence hunting in front of the cruise ship and how terrible. And I'm like, what a unique opportunity. Why didn't they put a different spin on it and say, we got to see actual subsistence harvesting going on right in Alaska. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like this, oh, my God, they're killing the seals. Yeah. it's uh, <laughs> some, Sometimes there's no accounting for people, you know. Um, that is, that is, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. After seeing all the people on the cruise ships, it doesn't surprise me that that was their reaction, (laughs) but, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I just tell them keep subsistence hunting in front of cruise ships. Maybe the cruise ships will have to take a different route around or something. (laughs) (laughs) They're all celebrating their little skiff, you know, (laughs) meanwhile, everyone's all horrified in the huge cruise ship. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> oh, it was funny. Well, Patty, I, I have a question for you. Shoot. Um, by far, what is your... I know you were telling me about the, 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 the halibut a la Mac, <laughs> but is there, do you have another like favorite Alaskan wild food? Oh, boy. That, like, That's is your, tough. Your, is that your... Yeah, there. When you if you can get well, king salmon or red salmon are the better ones to use, and you um, only half smoke it, and then 
once it's half smoked, then and the skin is still on. It's it's, it's like cut into strips, the, yeah. the fish, and then they're cut so almost like there's little cubes in a way. So when you hang it, you know, all the parts of the fish can dry. Right. So you're going to half dry it. So it's not going to be completely dry. It's going to be kind of uncooked and mushy on the inside or soft on the inside. <clears throat> so then you take that and you put it in a baking pan again and soy sauce and um, uh, lean parents sauce. Oh, yeah. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Yeah, there you go. Lean parents. Now, I went to England and they told me the pronunciation in England, which is where this sauce comes from, is Worcester. Really? That's it. That's the pronunciation. I'm Worcester say sauce. That from now Worcester on. sauce. I read that and I go Worcestershire or what? Yeah, <laughs> they they literally say it's Worcester sauce. That's huh. it. It's Worcester sauce. Okay, well that's what it is then. <laughs> so you take that and the soy sauce and you put that on there and um, probably I think you put some olive oil on the bottom and then um, you can put some. Uh, slice onion ring kind of things on the top and then just bake it for like a half an hour, I think, and serve it with rice. Mm. Simple, yeah. no seasonings, not your gourmet restaurant strategies here to <laughs> cook. It is simple, but it is delicious. That, that sounds that really good. That fish just melts in your mouth. Got a little bit of a smoky flavor. Mm-hmm. Half smoking, half drying. I had for breakfast <clears throat> when I was in one village. Nice. Well, that's a solid breakfast. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that for breakfast almost every morning, maybe. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Fish, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And then <laughs> the, there's another um, a snack that they, uh, um, some of the people, they dry halibut, so it's dry, dry. And then uh, dip it in seal oil. And okay. eat it that way. Really? Yeah. You have to have a taste for that, though. Yeah. Seal oil is kind of an acquired taste. Yeah, I've heard it's it's not something that, that you kind of jump right into, but it's, right. it's got a lot of uses. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah. Well, Patty, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast with me today. I enjoyed it. And this is your first podcast, so like yes. now, yeah, like, you know, we... we <laughs> You're much more relaxed now. You were so tense in the beginning. You're like, oh my gosh, this is super easy. I'm, I'm, I'm like the easiest podcast host ever. <laughs> you are. We just make it easy. So, <laughs> anyway, we appreciate you, Patty. Um, I appreciate all you listeners out there as well. Uh, thanks for joining us again today, and look forward to talking to you on the next one. Great. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>